Hello and thanks for tuning in to this episode of the ALT Learn Podcast. I'm John Tate and I'll be your host as we break down the craft of teaching and the science of learning, what this pedagogy looks like in the classroom, and get to find out how our teachers are turning all this theory into practice. So, let's dive into this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of the ALT Learn Podcast where we've got a cracking episode lined up for you today discussing how we can poverty-proof the curriculum in our schools. So I'm delighted to say that alongside me on today's show, we have another external guest of the podcast, someone who I can call a good friend as well as an education colleague, Sean Harris. Sean is a part-time doctoral student with Teesside University investigating poverty in schools and how we can tackle this in our classrooms, together with his day job as a trust improvement lead at Tees Valley Education Trust in Middlesbrough. Not only that, but he's also a published author in the fields of education, community work, and theology. So a warm welcome to the podcast, Sean. It's great to have you on as a guest with me today. Oh, thanks, John, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I always think this is um, this must be really hardcore listeners that are tuning in to learn about poverty. So, thank you. Uh, I promise that there'll be lots of actionable and practical takeaways as well. Yeah, fantastic. And wherever you're listening to this, whether it's uh, walking the dog, whether you're in the bath, whether you're driving the car, whatever it is, hopefully uh, between the you know well in the next thirty or so minutes, Sean will give you some real golden nuggets that you'll be able to take back into your schools. Whether you are um, a trust leader, school leader, subject leader, phase leader, year leader, classroom teacher, we're hopefully going to give everyone something to kind of be able to take back and uh, really tackle this this big problem today. So first question then, Sean, before we get into the details of how we can actually poverty-proof the curriculum, can you begin by giving our listeners some context of the impact of poverty and social mobility in education, why it's so important for us all to think about this, and why you're so passionate about it? Yeah, great question, John. Um, so, so I guess I, I want to start by saying to to listeners that we know that poverty was essentially a pandemic before COVID nineteen, right? So we know that the issues of disadvantage, deprivation, poverty have been an issue for for many many years, and. Whilst I appreciate that the term poverty or disadvantage might be uh, prickly for some listeners, um, I'm aware of the faults of that kind of terminology. But for the purposes of, of this podcast, I will talk about poverty and, and disadvantage interchangeably. One of the things that we know from recent years uh, is that, that the pandemic, the cost of living crisis, all those things combined have, have essentially turned up the volume of poverty. So uh, EEF, for example, did some did some research a couple of years ago essentially saying that school closures were, were likely to reverse the progress made in, in narrowing achievement gaps over the last you know, the last 10 years or so. We know that particularly for primary children, uh, there's been lower achievements in, in maths and, and, and reading. But also there's quite a bit of recent research emerging. And, and this, again, can be a bit prickly for, for, for some listeners. But there's some research to suggest that poverty has an impact on us neurologically as well. So quite literally, it can impact brain development. It can impact a child's capacity to learn. You, you asked John why I'm passionate about this. Uh, you might think, wow, this guy just does not get out much. Uh, he's so interested in poverty. I've got lived experience of it myself. Uh, I don't wear that as a badge of honor, but but nor do I wear it as you know a badge of bitterness either. Um, I think growing up with an aspect of poverty gave me a, a sort of distinct, special lens on on life. Um, realizing I didn't have as much as as others. As a school leader, I, I became frustrated with it because essentially I would say that poverty 
is arguably the hardest thing facing our workers educators and and you know john it permeates all aspects of what we do in schools pedagogy curriculum system leadership um so yeah just a few of the reasons why i'm particularly passionate about this yeah, and I, I can completely relate to that, Sean. Uh, and I've said at conferences quite a few times when I've spoken that you know I'm a, I'm a free school meal child as well, just like you. And I think that mm. therefore we're both really passionate about this, about being either the school leader or the teacher that we needed when we were at school. Um, and I think that's really important for all any listeners to you know, listening to this that actually you know you may have you may have been a free school meal child yourself. Um, mm. You know, and, it, and 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 as we know, there's there's a, there's a great deal of um, at the continuum between kind of you know real real hardship and poverty and kind of just being on the on 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 the kind of threshold of 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 that as well. Um, but wherever you are, wherever you sit on that, and, and even if even if you weren't, I think there's a real responsibility for us all, isn't there, to kind of to, to to make to make change here, to act on this, and to give all of us all all children you know the best possible education start that they can. So uh, yeah, really really interesting there as, as as a starting point. So if we now look at the the kind of focusing on the curriculum in our schools, then. And this is either yeah. at whole school level for senior leaders, um, a subject level for heads of subject or fears, or equally as important for classroom teachers here listening. What are the issues with the curriculum in our schools that can sometimes widen the disadvantage gap by our own design? And I think that's what I want to really stress that actually, mm. you know, we're the ones that design the curriculum, we're the ones that build it, but actually sometimes things that we're actually building um, without knowing are actually widening that gap. So can you can you focus a little bit and, and shed a bit of light on that for us? Yeah, for sure. I think what I'd say, and, and nobody wants to, to sort of argue against the pupil premium, because in theory, it's a really good thing, right? But but I think one of the first and foremost problems that I often come up against when I'm, when I'm supporting school leaders and understanding poverty, and particularly curriculum, John, is that we, we become somewhat obsessed with the pupil premium. So somehow we think that poverty is only or purely about the pupil premium. But actually, the, there's a whole stack of research out there. Um, listeners might find it helpful to, to visit the work of Stephen Gorrard at Durham University, who talks about it, it might be a convenient proxy for schools to use, but we know that in terms of it being a measure or a metric of disadvantage, it just doesn't cut the mustard. Um, and I'm reminded also of Mark Rowland. I mean, Mark Rowland talks about, um, you know, pupils are not at risk of underachievement because of labels such as the pupil premium, but it's because of the impact of socioeconomic disadvantage on our learning. So there is a need for us to, to be more uh, experts in the pupils, not just the pupil premium. And, and so any listeners tuning into this thinking, well, actually, how does it impact curriculum? First and foremost, let's take PP out of the equation. I think there's a number of ways it, it affects it. Um, we know that for some children, again, this won't be all, but for some children living in disadvantage, uh, they won't get the same exposure to uh, cultural capital, perhaps, or to some of those extracurricular enrichment activities for families. And of course, the cost of living will have absolutely amplified the, the impact of that in, in recent, recent years as well. I suppose, John, another way in which it kind of influences curriculum is the fact that we know there is, again, emerging research, quite recent research that shows there's a neurological impact of poverty for some children. Again, not all, but the turbulence of poverty, the turbulence of persistent long term disadvantage is genuinely impacting some children neurologically. So big concepts, big ideas, you know, actually there is a real difficulty for some of those learners. Now, please, listeners, I'm not saying we therefore have to dial down curriculum. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. But if we think of education reform in recent years, there's been a real focus on like do more, know more, think more, learn more. 
again, I'm not knocking that in its entirety. There is some good principles in that. But sometimes we run the risk of just trying to do more with curriculum. And actually, for some of our most disadvantaged children, we're not really breaking it down enough or into those real digestible bite-sized chunks by which for them to understand it. I, I guess one of the other things I would say is um, it's really easy to, to, to kind of form misconceptions, particularly when you're living in, in poverty. I can remember, for example, I don't think it was until I got to university that I realized I was in some form of disadvantage. And we were in the student bar and we were kind of talking to friends, uh, you know, in that kind of freshers week uh, atmos that you do. And we were exchanging stories of our childhood. Um, and I can remember being surrounded by these people who, who clearly had a bit more money than me, a bit more middle class. You could tell from the tone of voice uh, that they had. Um, and I remember telling this uh, this story of I said, oh, do you, do you remember when you were young? And the white van would pull up in the street and your dad thought it was the bailiff. So you had to hide behind the sofa. And there was this like deathly silence. I remember this one guy opposite me just went, no, no, I, I don't uh, actually remember that. Um, now I did, right? Like that, okay, it wasn't an everyday occurrence, but I did. And that, because of those experiences, I definitely came with some misconceptions to the table as a learner, which some teachers were really good at homing in on and correcting. Others completely missed it. That's really interesting, isn't it? I think it's always important for us to put ourselves back into the seat or back into the shoes yeah. of that learner and think, well, actually, you know, what were the things that I did? And, you know, I know I I went abroad kind of twice uh, as, a, as, as, as a child. Uh, we went, went to France once and went to Denmark and, and that was it. We didn't go on lots of different holidays here that were... I didn't go to the theater. I didn't kind of eat out in restaurants. So actually, mm -hmm. you know, when we think about some of those things in our curriculum about, about the theater or about this or about that, well, actually at 11 or 12 or 13, I would have had no idea about that, you know, and I didn't have a, a wide appreciation of different foods and that kind of stuff, because again, it just wasn't something that we did as a family, not that we yeah. lived in total poverty, but actually my experience was limited. Um, and therefore, and we'll, we'll come to this in a little bit, but actually people coming to the table have different levels of cultural capital and therefore, depending on the um, on on the, on the source in front of them, the exam question or whatever it is, the accessibility to actually that information is vastly is vastly different, isn't it? And I think oh, that, for sure, you know, I think so. I think that's really important for us to all to remember that, and not to not to also forget how it impacted on us or how it might have impacted on us, um, you know, depending on the the, the kind of the ed educational experience that we had. So that that kind of links in then to nice my next question, Sean, in terms of some practical examples, really. So. Speaking from your own experience in schools, uh, and also, you know, as, as you mentioned about your recent uh, research for your doctorate, are there any practical examples that you can share with us and our listeners that listeners will be hopefully able to relate to and then check that they're not making the same mistakes in their own curriculum planning and design? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think, John, what, what I want to say, sort of a, a, an add-on as well to the last question, is that Often there is a misconception in our schools, um, and, and I see this, you know, sometimes in, in the trust that I serve, I've seen it, um, you know, in myself as a teacher at times, that sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking that poverty equals low aspirations. Um, you know, we sometimes hear that mantra, don't we? Oh, if only the, the parents aspired to a bit more, if only, um, you know, they wanted the same thing for their child as I want for that child. Well, actually, there's a whole bunch of research to show that it really isn't to do with aspirations. Actually, what it's to do with is about access to those opportunities, which you touched on a, a moment ago there as well. So I think first and foremost, like when we're planning or when we're delivering, when we are designing curriculum, let's work on this premise that actually those children do have aspirations. Those parents do have aspirations. Um, so instead, how do we make 
the impossible or the what might seem unobtainable to them to be more obtainable? How do we give them those real world experiences? What I would say as well is this, again, is not about dialing down curriculum or dumbing it down, making it easier. But actually, it's sometimes about going back to the starting point in that curriculum and saying, do they have the knowledge needed? Do they have the, the first bits of knowledge needed to access what I want them to access in this unit, in this lesson, um, maybe in, in, the, in this kind of academic year, you know? Mm -hmm. I use the example of, I remember planning this, uh, what I thought was this really great uh, RE scheme of work in an academy I worked with, where we know we had a predominantly white working class. Uh, we knew there was some prejudice with the boys, particularly about kind of Muslims and, um, and, and others uh, in terms of, sort of ethnic groups and so on. And we thought, oh, let's tackle it. Let's deal with the elephant in the room. So we did this whole thing about, um, you know, really kind of quashing the idea that, that you know, um, that Muslims somehow are, are terrorists and really breaking that down in terms of why is it some people have that prejudice why is it some people um begin to have sort of the the, the beginnings of islamophobia and it was all about tackling it and i thought cracking you know case study uh, involved in it cracking resource really impressed with it um went to deliver it in the classroom and within 20 minutes of opening this lesson up um i think the question i asked was something like um what might be the challenges of being a British Muslim in the modern world. And it's just deathly silent. Like, I just couldn't couldn't kind of work out what they were struggling with. Mm -hmm. After a few minutes, one of the lads, no malice intended, said, sir, what's a British Muslim? I don't get what you mean. Muslims are from other countries, aren't they? Uh -huh. Now, as, a, as an expert, as a teacher, as someone that's delivered this for, for many years, this kind of topic, um, I'd totally forgotten that those kids in front of me and these were year 10s year 11s uh -huh. did not have a concept of things like dual citizenship or dual identity or the fact that actually someone can be british and be muslim may have even been born in this country yeah uh -huh. um, and i've made some major assumptions about their starting point so first and foremost like what's the starting point that we want children to have here um we've done some work as a trust and we, we've uh, just been successful in, in being able to access some, some external funding to do some research on this as well, where we are working with groups of disadvantaged children to essentially do like a pre-mortem with them on the mm -hmm. curriculum and say, look, we're about to start doing this topic. What topics do you think children might struggle with who don't have as much as you so we're framing it like that sensitively so that those children don't think that you know they're in front of us yeah, yeah. because they're disadvantaged uh -huh. I, I think from a, a sort of early career point of view as well from a novice teacher's point of view as well john some of the things i'd recommend is um the, the, the power of collaborative planning if it's done properly like uh -huh. having someone that's taught like 30 years sit with someone that is brand new to teaching and saying does that make sense to you as a novice obviously don't necessarily call them that but you know give me a naked pair of eyes on that what does that look like to you do those concepts make sense am i assuming too much of the children there is it clear where i'm trying to get to i don't think there is ever more a call for planning backwards as there is here around poverty so start with the end in mind where are you trying to get to and then like plan backwards with that in mind and and here's the other bit that i would say is so important when it comes to poverty and disadvantage is if you know that the kids in front of you are struggling with that 20, 30% of that bit of curriculum or that unit, don't keep going forwards. Like mm -hmm. it is okay to only teach 50 or 60% of that curriculum because it's better for them to be masters in that 
than be absolute amateurs and novices in 100% and therefore fail to recall any of it in time for an exam or an assessment. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, and I think that there's so many things there in terms of, you know, establishing that starting point and actually, you know, that that yeah. kind of that pre-mortem or, or, or the pre-assessment about kind of, you know, where out where are the students and, and, and what are those fundamental blocks of kind of knowledge that our students need to kind of have or have, or have experienced to be able to access the things in front of them. Um, and, you know, you and I have spoken about this before, about kind of, you know, e- exam questions that have reading ages of kind of, you know, 18, 16, 17, 18, 19, yeah. that, that type of stuff with, you know, really core concepts in them that actually if you haven't experienced some of those things uh, personally or you've been exposed to them, then you just can't, you, you can't grasp what it's asking, isn't it? And, and I think that, yeah. that, that that's so important. Um, so yeah, and, and you know, I've, I've heard you talk about lots of lots of stuff, and the one that stuck out with me, you, you know, actually, I, I know you you were going to kind of mention, but you know, talk to me about talk talk to the listeners about about what you were talking about with the the, the, the beaches, because like that that yeah. was that really that really kind of it made me sit up and listen to that. You know, I was like, wow, this is really interesting. So if you yeah. just go go for that anecdote for me. Yeah, for sure. So, so primary curriculum uh, for listeners uh, unfamiliar with it, this particular part of the, I think it's the key stage two curriculum. It talks about the the challenges or the tensions of living basically in coastal areas. Yeah, um, and it was the the head of academy actually that that shared this story with me, and he was asking this question in in a in I think in an assembly or in an enrichment activity, and he said to to the pupils uh, somewhere along the lines of, so what might be the challenges of living in a coastal area? Now, just for kind of context, uh, this particular academy, less than a mile from the beach, we've got the beautiful uh, coastline, Red Car Cleveland coastline up here uh, near kind of North Yorkshire in the, in the Tees Valley. So, you know, kids, you would easily assume are regularly at the beach and doing beach type activities. And this little lad puts his hand up and says, um, well, a coconut might fall on your head. Now, again, no malice intended. He's not trying to be a joker, not trying to be difficult. Um made the head of academy step back and go oh that's interesting where's that mental model coming from now for listeners unaware of red car and cleveland beach you don't get many coconuts right <laughs> you don't get many coconuts at all in fact um you might get one at the little at best right but you ain't getting them on palm trees on our uh, not so exotic coast but it's interesting isn't it because it just again goes through that that point that that child that we would assume is living near the beach, so therefore regularly goes to the beach, regularly understands what the beach is about, clearly has a mental model that is incorrect about his local beach, yeah? And I think, again, that's a really important thing to to point out here for listeners. When we're planning curriculum with disadvantage in mind, actually take a moment, to, even if it's just one or two, to pick what you think might be the common misconceptions from a child living in some form of, you know, absolute or relative poverty in your community. What misconception might might they have? Not what error, not what mistake might they have, but what misconception? Misconception in that case, that every beach has a palm tree and that there's palm trees on red car Cleveland beaches. Clearly that's something you're going to need to unpick with them um, before you start to teach lots of new content. Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that that's so important, and I thank you for, for for sharing that with us because I think the the idea of misconceptions, and I talk a lot, lot about this when I talk about multiple choice questioning and how mm. you can kind of use you know uh, wrong answers uh, to to identify misconceptions because if a student like you said has got a, a makes a mistake. 
then actually that student will hopefully at some point be able to correct that mistake or not make that same mistake again. If it's a misconception and a deep-seated, you know, deep-rooted misconception, then that student will get that question wrong until the day they die because actually they are not getting it wrong in their head. You know, it, it, is, you know, it makes complete sense to them because actually their mental model, as you say, always leads them back to that answer. So therefore, finding out what students have done wrong or, or which students have done it wrong isn't really that helpful it's finding out which students have got you know why they've got it wrong you know it's it's kind of you know which students have got misconceptions and therefore if there's 10 percent of students i need to then record that and rewire that misconception then that's mm. what i need to do because otherwise you know you, you're just going to keep going around in circles and they're going to keep absolutely it wrong. um so yeah really really important and i think a, a key message there for anyone listening is taking the time to speak to students either as a school or an individual teacher um to find out where their starting points are um, but until, but, but before that step, you need to then work out what are the key and core bits of knowledge that students need to understand or know yeah. or have experienced or been exposed to, to be able to access this. And I think that, you know, as you said, planning backwards, you know, kind of working it back and starting to think, well, what are those things that we need? Right. They need to know A, B, C, and D. Right. Once we, once we've worked that out as a school, we then need to yeah. speak to the students and work out if they know A, B, C, and D. And if they do and they're aware of it, then we can crack on with the curriculum. If they don't, then like you say, we've got to we've got to have that pre-step, haven't we, first? Otherwise, what we're about to present them is just not accessible. Or should I say it's accessible for a certain percentage of students, I think is what you're saying, um, but not for everyone. And I think that that that's that's probably a key takeaway there. So moving on then to 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 the the, the final question now, leading into the next one kind of quite nicely, is that after what we've said there, I presume that many of our listeners previous to this, listening to this conversation might not have even been conscious that some of the content in the curriculum that they've actually built, designed and implemented has mm-hmm. actually been a barrier for some of the students to access due to a lack of cultural capital resulting from economic status or opportunities. So now we've kind of planted that squarely in their kind of mind now, how should a school leader, a subject or a phase leader, or even a classroom teacher go about reviewing their curriculum to check that it's actually poverty proofed? Yeah, great question, John. Um, so I think there's a few things. And, and listeners, what I would really encourage you to, to understand here is that there are no silver bullets. So there are no quick fixes. There's nothing you're going to be able to get off the shelf that is going to essentially uh, ensure that that you have absolutely poverty proved your curriculum. It needs to be an ongoing process. Curriculum's never done, right? So there's like loads of research to show that that the best curriculum architects are those that are regularly reviewing and going back over. It's a bit like the teacher that says, oh, I'm up to date with my marking. You're never up to date with your marking. Mm-hmm. It's, it's constant. Um, and, you know, we need to take the, this mindset with this as well. Whilst there are no silver bullets, I think there are some good sense research informed approaches that, that will support. So, so one um, I would say is make sure that that when you're particularly dealing with big concepts or big ideas so i use the example of a holocaust as as a holocaust or as a history teacher there are so many key concepts in the holocaust justice prejudice equality discrimination xenophobia what are the ones you really want to focus on don't just like come up with a list of 30 like make it really bite-sized and manageable And then I suppose the next bit I would really recommend is make sure that you've reviewed your curriculum and asked yourself, where am I regularly overexposing children to those terms to the point that they might even get sick of it? You know, I've had kids say to me, oh, it's that word again, sir. You keep using it. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm doing it deliberately. I don't tell them it's because they're poor, but I do it because I want them to understand it. 
where is the retrieval? Is it routine in that curriculum? And again, you know, you, John, you talked about low stakes. I cannot insist enough um, that you you look at what low stakes means in practice. And I know your your mm-hmm. book, uh, Teaching Reboot, Rebooted, covers that in great detail. And another one, and again, this is not every child in poverty, but we know for some children, neurologically, the impact of turbulence in the home environment, attachment, malnutrition, in the worst cases of examples, trauma and abuse, is the case for some children. I cannot stress the importance of dialing down distractions in your curriculum. And by that, I mean, be really specific and precise with what we're trying to teach. Sometimes as teachers, we want to be super creative. I've done it myself. I remember once setting up a CSI lesson where kids had to investigate the missing body of Jesus as part of an Easter topic. (laughs) They had great fun. They didn't learn anything. I remember kids coming out, I think he was murdered. I think this happened. Dead interesting. But actually, did it teach them about what Christians think about the the death and resurrection of Christ ready for their RE exam? Probably not, if I'm honest. (laughs) Um, So dial down distractions. And by that, I mean, you know, don't overload your slides. Don't overload your lesson resources. If you're using worksheets, like, and you're still using worksheets, think carefully, you know, four or five in one lesson is going to overload your, particularly your most disadvantaged kids. If we're asking them to do three or four different things for homework via three or four hyperlinks, that is going to overload some kids. Mm-hmm. The final thing I guess I'd, I'd really say as well, though, John, is I cannot stress the importance of feedback. And, and you know, I use that term deliberately, not marking, but feedback. For some of your children, the most impoverished children, they will need a specific form of feedback that is bespoke to them. One size does not fit all. So if you're giving like, whole class feedback that's fine but you might need to really think about little johnny or little billy there on the front row that is impoverished that might need you to give 30 60 seconds independently alongside him in the lesson to really talk through on a granular level what those next steps mean i cannot stress like that is one of the biggest things Mm -hmm. that's enabled me to to support uh landing the curriculum in a classroom and I think that's really interesting as well, mentioning there, there's a couple things I want to pick up there, but firstly on that one about feedback and not thinking that it's written marking and not thinking that it's you know red pen marking or a whole page of kind of writing that actually you think that the student is going to you know read, digest, understand, respond yeah. to, and actually, you know, that, that, how you mentioned it there in my, in my head, kind of almost, you know, kneeling down next to the desk, you know, spending 20 or 30 seconds, just actually, ascertaining have they understood what it is you know and, and yeah. giving some next steps that is just because that really is feedback you know it, it's not written marking and, and i think if we if we're naive enough to think that everyone's going to go away and read all the red pen and and, and do all the mm-hmm. kind of corrections i think we, we need to kind of take a, a, a you know a step back t- to that to begin with the other thing i want to pick up on sean there was something that i didn't really a learning point for me as well i'd never really appreciated or really thought about um the the turbulence at home and how that would impact Whoa. on the distractions in the classroom um, and actually, you know, the kind of cognitive load and 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 the, you know, the, the the busy slides or the or the noise in the room, and I hadn't ever really kind of, I suppose, connected those mm. two things together. Um, you know, I'd always thought about kind of disadvantage being the experiences that the child had in terms of how they see the world and the and you know the kind of the the, the lack of cultural capital or the the lack of opportunities they have. But actually, what you're saying is actually that it's even more important that we get that classroom culture and uh, conditions right because. Well, if, if I'm if I'm reading this right, that actually mm-hmm. the the distractions that they have at home um, have, have have somehow, I suppose, made it more difficult for them to kind of be able to concentrate in, in that environment. Is 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 that right? 
Yeah, absolutely, John. And again, like listeners, we're not saying this will be every child in poverty, but I use the example recently of I was doing a reading view, a reading review in one of our academies, and um, had this this bunch of, of reluctant readers that they're called, but they're no longer reluctant. Like if anything, they they love reading more than everybody else <laughs> in the academy, which is awesome. I remember a little lad just saying to me, he said, um, he said, it's hard to read though at home, isn't it? And I said, what, what do you mean? Tell me more. He said, well, with the sound of the motorbikes outside, it's, it, it's really hard. Now, that was his way of just giving me an insight. You know, I don't, I don't have yeah, to visit yeah. his house to get what he's getting out there. I get mm -hmm. it. And okay, that will not be every child in poverty, but are, do we have a forensic level understanding of what that home life might look like? And if we don't, there are probably some safe bets we can get from chatting with the senko chatting with pastoral teams you know shadow shadow pastoral teams if you've got capacity to do it just to get a sense of what it looks like through the breadth of that school day for that child i cannot stress that enough that will absolutely help you better adapt your curriculum to the needs of specific kids in mind um and and absolutely the the turbulence factor john i mean one of the things I, I would stress is, is really important when you're looking at the kind of impact of poverty on the brain, we're not saying it's every child in poverty and we're not saying it is one specific aspect of poverty. Pretty much the research currently is saying it is to do with the length of exposure in poverty and it's a multitude of things, but a common denominator and a lot of it is turbulence in the home environment. Mm -hmm. And turbulence might involve being without three steady meals that day turbulence might be a loud busy environment turbulence might be sharing a room with your two brothers or your two sisters right mm -hmm. um, and mom or dad having to work around the clock you know we know more parents have taken up additional and agile work through the cost of living crisis that understandably is going to create turbulence right in home environments so i guess just be mindful of that especially when we're giving information to children in any context that's brilliant. And just picking up on that that point, yeah, you, you kind of made a, a recommendation for people to potentially shadow a pastoral team or mm. you know, what what type of things would they be? So let, let's imagine I'm a subject leader, let's say, um, mm. or even a classroom teacher. What am I what am I looking for? Apart because you, know, you can you can do those things and you can have your eyes closed a little bit, or you can not be looking at the right things or not be looking, looking through the right lenses. So what advice would you give to people? You know, what should they be looking for and what should they be hoping yeah. to get out of an exercise like that? I, I'm going to give you two things, and again, not silver bullets, but I'll give you two things that I would recommend any teacher does if they haven't done it. And even if they have, like, go back and do it again. One is spend some time shadowing a parental meeting with a family or a parent that you know, for whatever reason, or the, the pastoral leaders are saying, struggles to engage with, 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 with school, right? Mm -hmm. um, Liz Todd, who's a professor at Newcastle, talks about we often have this phrase about hard to reach parents. And actually, the reality is sometimes it's that we are hard to engage with schools because that parent might have had a really duff experience of school. So you stand for everything that they dislike about <laughs> school, yeah. right? Spend some time getting to know them. Hear from what it's like from their point of view. I study poverty and, and I still have my the scales removed from my eyes with this stuff. I remember meeting a parent recently that said to me, she said, um, do you know, she said, in the cost of living, she said, I know that your, your kind of cashless system in schools really helps kids out, right? But she said, in the cost of living, we're finding as mums that we are no longer using that because we are physically taking money out of a cash point on a Sunday night because it helps us physically budget for the next week. Yeah. Now, these are mums who were in work poverty, right? This yeah. was not like absolute poverty. But essentially what she was saying was, 
your whole school system is well-intentioned, but at the minute you're relying on us using mobile data, going on our mobile phones and topping it up. And I'm telling you at the minute, I don't have capacity to do that. So straight away, like those little bits of insight will totally help you poverty educate yourself and your teams. The, the, the second thing I, I would, would really recommend, John, that, that, that staff do is something that I refer to as a diet walk. Now, I'm not mm -hmm. saying that you should shadow kids and see what they're eating. That's not what this is about. Mm -hmm. I might be a part of it. But what does the school diet look like for that little boy or that little girl throughout the breadth of that day? And as a shadowing pastoral teams, like, okay, don't let the child know you're doing it with them in mind. Maybe pick a group. What does it look like from when they come into school, when they go to the first, second, third lessons, break times and structured time after school? What diet are they getting, pedagogically speaking? in terms of the curriculum, and also those whole school systems, that can be so insightful, particularly if you're doing it with people that are new to the school that might not be as familiar with your systems. And you might think your systems are foolproof, but I can bet my bottom dollar that you'll find things out in that day that could be adjusted to help lessen the impact of disadvantage for your most impoverished families. Wow. Some absolute gold nuggets there, just to, just to finish off with listeners won't be able to see this because they, they won't listen to the audio but my kind of face kind of my jaw dropped a little bit when you talked about the um, the online systems and the kind of mobile mm -hmm. data and the cashless systems all those things that like you say are very very well intentioned but you can just imagine how actually it's it's making it even harder for some of those families yeah. um when it's you know and if you think about school trips dinner money uniform you know all of that stuff and and what happens if you know you, they don't have a bank account or, or, or like you say they can't because actually they don't want to use the, the mobile data or it's just, it's incredible to really think about the things that we haven't thought about that actually are impacted, whether it's the content now curriculum, whether it's the processes, the procedures, the structures, or just that diet of the day. So I think there's so many things for people to take away from this, this conversation uh, at whatever level you are. And I think we've hopefully structured this today, whether you are, you know, a CEO, trust leader, head teacher, senior leader, subject phase leader, head of year um classroom teacher you know support assistant whatever you know teaching assistant irrespective of your role i think there's something for you to take away and really appreciate from today's conversation um it's certainly been a, a huge learning curve for me for the last half an hour 35 minutes so i just want to say a massive thank you sean um it's been a pleasure speaking to you uh, about this today and hopefully everyone you know like i say whatever their position and wherever they are listening will be able to take something away from this so uh, just a, a huge thank you on behalf of everyone sean for sharing your pearls of wisdom your research your experience um and your humility as well so thank you very much indeed oh thank you john it's a real pleasure listeners and what i would say is look none of us are an expert in this we are in the business of learning as educators so we are really well placed to support our families facing the most disadvantage. So don't give up, keep calm and carry on. Thanks, John. And if people want to find out more, Sean, if you, I'll give you a little plug, where, where would they find you? Yeah, right? sure. Yeah, reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Sean Harris underscore N-E for Northeast. Uh, and I'm spelled the S-E-A-N uh, way uh, on that one. So that's at Sean Harris underscore N-E. Or you can reach me on Instagram at that poverty guy. Um, but also uh, I'm available on, on email and uh, always happy to pick up the phone to others wanting to make sense of this difficult and complex topic of poverty in our schools. So please do reach out listeners. And also uh, let me magpie some of your ideas too. Perfect. Yeah. So yeah, I would definitely get in touch with Sean if you're interested. Um, and if you if you're not on Twitter or you're not on social media and you want to find him, uh, look up Tees Valley Education um, and their website. And you'll find Sean on there. Uh, so yeah, thanks once again, Sean. Thanks, John. 
Thanks for listening to the ALT Learn Podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode where we'll be speaking to more of our teachers and finding out how they're turning theory into practice. Until then, take care.